everyone, you're listening to Shout for Libraries, Edmonton's favorite, and as far as I know, only library-centric news radio program. My name is Julia Guy, and I will be your host for today's episode on Intellectual Freedom in Library Spaces. If you haven't tuned in before, Shout for Libraries is a program written and created by students in the Master's in Library and Information Studies program here at U of A. And every month, we bring you news about the world of librarianship. This month's topic was not a hard one for us to choose, actually. In case you haven't kept up with the glamorous and exciting world of library policy recently, public libraries in Canada kind of had a moment, again, over the past few weeks. The cliff notes are, the Toronto Public Library rented a meeting room in its Palmerston branch uh, to a group called Radical Feminists Unite. At their event, they invited a trans-exclusionary radical feminist to speak. The speaker, identifying as a gender-critical feminist, does not see trans folks, and particularly trans women, as a legitimate social category, thereby denying their existence and agency. Here's a quick background on the speaker in question. Megan Murphy is a somewhat well-known academic with a BA in Women's Studies and a Master's in Gender, Sexuality and Women's Studies from Simon Fraser University. She owns and manages a feminist current website and podcast self-described as Canada's leading feminist website. Generally, her views can be summarized as a form of binary biological essentialism. She believes that a person is defined by one of two biological sexes that were assigned at birth and the subsequent socialization they experienced as a result of that. Gender, distinct from sex, as uh, an internalized choice is invalid and dangerous in her opinion. It is entirely an external socialized construct. In 2017, she appeared before the Senate to speak against the passage of Bill C-16, arguing against gender expression and gender identity becoming protected categories under the Canadian Human Rights Act. In 2018, she was banned from Twitter after it changed its policy on harassment and hateful conduct for misgendering individuals who are trans and using pre-transitional names. In January 2019, she spoke at the Vancouver Public Library. Afterwards, Vancouver amended its booking policy. The Vancouver Public Library was banned from participating in Pride as a result of this. In May, she was invited to Scottish Parliament to speak against legislation similar to BC16. So this brings us up to Toronto. October 2019, just last month, the Toronto Public Library had previously amended its booking policy following a previous controversy involving literal Nazis. Uh, Vickery Bowles, the Toronto Public Library's chief librarian, chose not to exercise that amended policy in this case of this booking. Protest against her speaking engagement and the TPL's role were organized and attended by many groups, among others, the Toronto Public Library Workers' Union, interestingly enough. Conversely, many mainstream newspapers like the National Post and other post-media-owned publications, that's a whole other thing, reported on the controversy. During the talk, the police were called in for the safety of the lecture attendees and for Murphy. They appear to have instituted kettling tactics against some of the protesters, including trans women, which adds to the history of Toronto Police's role in violence against LGBTQIA2S plus community. If you're interested in that, you can also look up uh, Operation SOAP and their mishandling of the Bruce MacArthur investigation. The Edmonton Public Library CEO, Pilar Martinez, in her role as chair of the Canadian Urban Libraries Council, posted a letter of support for TPL's decision on her public Twitter account 
and retweeted a National Post headline calling the protest at TPL in response to Murphy's room booking a nauseating display. This hit Edmonton's social media and mainstream media cycle when Pilar Martinez congratulated Matthew Stepanek on being named in Avenue Magazine's top 40 under 40. In the comments on Twitter, she was called out for her support, which led to Stepanek denouncing her position on the whole Megan Murphy situation. Uh, she has since, Martinez, uh, released a statement through EPL, which you can read if you would like on epl.ca. And uh, now we're going to hear a statement, actually, from Matthew Stepanek. My name is Matthew Stepanek, and I'm the current writer-in-residence at the Edmonton Public Library and the co-owner of Glass Bookshop. I chose to speak out against TPL's choice to allow Megan Murphy to speak at the library and EPL CEO Pilar's defense of that choice because as a cis gay white man, I believe it's important to use what privilege I have to fight for the rights of other queer people, especially trans people whose valid identities should not be called into question. I also realized that as a contractor at EPL, I was the only person allowed to speak my mind about the situation as it's ironic that most employees are not allowed to speak freely and publicly about their thoughts on the situation. I do not believe that Vickery Bowles and TPL's defensive free speech is valid, uh, as the right to free speech does not give you the right to have a public platform to share your ideas. Turfs like Megan and the organization that brought her in are trying to validate their harmful ideas by finding platforms like public libraries to make it appear like others approve of their ideas and to try to appear to be more rational. Uh, this is dangerous for marginalized folks. As to paraphrase Judith Butler, if we were to consider that all ideas are equal under free speech and that we'll hold that principle above everything else, then we can agree in advance that we will have our communities sundered, racial and sexual minorities demeaned, and the dignity of trans people denied. That was Matthew Stepanek, writer-in-residence at EPL and co-owner of Glass Bookshop. Uh, we thank him so much for contributing that to our discussion today. Uh, this is part of a broader discussion happening within library schools, among library workers, and in society at large. How do we negotiate limits on free speech and intellectual freedom, particularly as groups that have been historically marginalized are taking back space in public dialogues? We believe that it's important that this discussion happens in library and information studies classrooms and amongst library workers, and also to be available to the public. Uh, so we have several members of the SHOUT team here in studio at CGSR for this live discussion on the topic. So we are basically going to discuss this. We're going to share some clips from some people who have also contributed their opinions uh, and just kind of... Uh, have a dialogue basically. So uh, my name is Julia as I mentioned my pronouns are she her and I am in the combined master's in library and information studies and digital humanities program. Hi I'm Belinda my pronouns are she her I'm a full-time course-based master of library and information studies student and I currently work in the U of A archives. My name is Dan I go by the pronouns he and him and my program is the Master of Library and Information Studies combined with the Master of Arts and Digital Humanities. My name is Timothy. Um, my pronouns are he, him, and I'm also in the MLIS program, and I work in the uh, University of Alberta's Academic Library. My name is Joel, um, Joel Blackinger. I work uh, as an RA at U of A. I have worked in different uh, library settings. Uh, my program is the uh, MA-MLIS program as well, and my pronouns are he, him. 
Fantastic. So uh, let's get the ball rolling. Um, we wanted to start off with this question as it is something that comes up a lot when we are talking. Obviously, we are all students. Uh, we are entering into this field, and this is something that comes up a lot. So that's where we're going to start the discussion today. So is there a difference, uh, for anyone here who can answer this, uh, between current library leaders' views on this topic uh, and the views of librarians or future librarians like us who are just entering the field? Is there a difference, do we think, in how people interpret freedom of expression in libraries? Um, I guess I'll start. So I think that perhaps what we're experiencing here as students is a different perspective on the concept of neutrality. And we're now beginning to see that neutrality is actually a stance. And it's not just abstaining from having an opinion on the topic, it's actually reinforcing one side or the other, whether or not that's our intention. And um, I think that for a lot of people, there's been a, like a really deeply embedded sense of what libraries represent and what the traditional values are. And we're starting to see that sometimes the context really matters where we apply those principles and that there are other principles that need to be factored in as well. I do agree, and I do see that generational divide in a lot of ways, uh, as exemplified by Alvin Schrader in his uh, prominent blog post on the Center for Free Expression in Canada, where he says, and remember, at their extremes, right and left are indistinguishable. Think Stalin and Mao and Hitler and Mussolini. And I think this speaks to the idea that there's only this one spectrum and that uh, it's we're able to set a point of neutrality that's somehow in the middle uh, here and that any extreme from that neutrality is equally radical. But I actually want to disagree and say that someone advocating for limiting another group's rights and another and a group advocating for their own human rights are just demonstrably different positions. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and uh, you talk about sort of these kind of views of librarianship and intellectual freedom going hand in hand. Uh, does the fact that intellectual freedom is named as a core value for both the Li American Library Association and the International Federation of Library Associations, uh, it's been considered a cornerstone of librarianship forever. Uh, and it impacts greatly the way that libraries decide whether or not to rent space to controversial people or groups. Uh, so what considerations do libraries have to take into account when determining who should get access uh, and what kind of access should be granted? Um, I think that's an interesting question. I do want to uh, agree with what Belinda said where she said uh, the commitment to this Western tradition of intellectual freedom and the public perception of that commitment is actually one of the most important factors in libraries maintaining their relatively high levels of support in modern neoliberal society. And if libraries were to start promoting the other core values to which they su subscribe, how I, I worry that conservative politicians would very quickly come for them, and that in the same way that other public services have been defunded, that libraries would then be vulnerable to that as well. That being said, I am not sure that that protect that I value the protection there more than I value the lives of a marginalized community. And I, yeah. And just to add to that, I think there would need to be some significant consideration of on what basis those decisions would be made on who is allowed and who isn't allowed to access that space, because naturally there's going to be some bias there. 
And so there would need to be some really well-established rules that try to avoid any kind of lean in either direction. And I think that would be incredibly challenging, as we're already seeing with this issue. It is a very divided thing. And, and to be clear, the American Public Library Association, which is really a leading organization in establishing sort of library goals and priorities, not only in America, but also in Canada and, and really, I think, throughout the world, um, uh, includes in, it, in its values social responsibility. And that's often seen as conflicting with, um, uh, with intellectual freedom. Um, and, and historically, we've seen that whenever you know, these come in conflict, um, intellectual freedom tends to win out. Um, so that brings into question really, uh, on one hand, like the sincerity with which these other values are really upheld if they, um, you know, are, are abandoned at the first sight of, you know, a difficulty in, in, uh, <laughs> in, in acting upon them. That is, I think, a really important part is that there are other values that mm -hmm. the ALA and that the EPL and that the TPL have committed to. And it is interesting that intellectual freedom seems to be prioritized over these other values. But equity, inclusion, and diversity are also important values as well. And in the context of the internet, where we have spaces where multiple perspectives and often intellectual freedom and freedom of expression are leveraged as one of the main attributes of that space, how do libraries differentiate themselves? Are they most valuable actually as an intersection of the accessibility of information with diversity, with inclusion, with equity of access? Yeah, and I think that's been a major critique of that intellectual freedom argument is the fact that we are positioning intellectual freedom, which is a pretty highly abstract, elevated concept above real people in the moment right now who are suffering. You can really see that in, in the manner in which the TPL has uh, um, sort of reacted to the public uh, backlash or the, the uh, demonstrations that have taken place against its uh, policies. That it, they essentially called the cops on the protesters rather than um, adhering to the uh, purported value of actual, you know, community-led librarianship, engagement with communities, um, and you know, you know, intellectual freedom uh, won out in this case. I was just going to jump on here. I do exist. I am. I am in the room. Um, the, the question of, of generational difference is really strong for me. Um, I, I reread uh, Alvin's um, CFE piece uh, this afternoon in preparation, and, and uh, it, it does, like, it's almost like there's a real affective component for me. Anyway, sorry, that's getting scholarly. Um, <laughs> the, uh, I, I feel that me, like, Alvin and I, I feel a really stark generational difference when I read that piece, and I'm not even sure I can put it into words um, super well sometimes, but um, it just feels like he's coming out of a, a really strong liberal tradition um, that I maybe used to identify in my early 20s. Like, it's the type of piece where... Um, 
I can picture myself reading it in my early 20s, say I would have gone to library school in my early 20s, uh, and just fist pumping the whole way through. And <laughs> and this this afternoon when reading it, it was like more like being infuriated the whole way through. And I don't know what if that says more about me than the piece, but um, it, it was something that didn't make the cut in our uh, me and uh, Timothy's interview with Sam Pop, which is just this um, sense that um, do we this this liberal uh, lineage in librarianship do we have to continue to toe that line is that the 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 identity of our profession that we have to toe to the kind of like legalistic um, I mean like pragmatically we do because we exist <laughs> within a state and there are laws but just this kind of unqualified free speech absolutism that I think despite what Alvin's saying in the piece that he's not coming out on that side I, I really get that feel in that piece like quoting John Stuart Mill and all this stuff anyway that was a long <laughs> comment <Scholarly. laughs> uh, okay so just to just to mix it up if uh, libraries were to become more selective about who they allow spaces to and essentially platforms do what are some potential obstacles or issues that might arise if libraries were more selective about who they allow to book space? What could be lost by being having more of like a cu curation sort of approach to who gets a platform, who doesn't? Do you want to have any comments on that? Dan? I think the main thing with this, and uh, to me it's actually the biggest argument in favor of uh, this traditional concept of freedom of expression, is the idea of generational hubris. How do we know that any limits we would place on expression are not the wrong limits when viewed by the people of the future in hindsight? What are these biases that we have that we cannot see? I think that's great. Um, why don't we uh, hear another perspective here? Uh, we'll go now to uh, Parker Lafleur, who was generous enough to make a comment here for us. My name's Parker and I use he, him pronouns. I'm one of the co-owners of The Quilt Bag, which is a local LGBTQ retail store. And I'm also a frequent patron of public libraries. I was extremely disappointed, sad, and frustrated to see the situation at the Toronto Public Library and to be watching live tweets of the situation unfolding where people were protesting Megan Murphy speaking at that library. I was extremely disappointed to see in particular, the way that people in positions of power responded to that um, situation, and particularly the crux of the discussion around what is considered hate speech and what is considered to be transphobic rhetoric that harms trans people. Um, I think the, the burden, the standard that was set around preventing people from speaking at a public space like a library is so incredibly high, the barrier is so high to prove that it's legal hate speech. And the way that those laws work in Canada are really difficult for, first of all, for individuals to understand why they're applied the way that they are um, in an everyday space that people should be able to access for all kinds of reasons and to feel safe doing that. I know that TPL said that, you know, the things that this person says that Megan Murphy says aren't considered hate speech or that their legal consultations didn't decide that that would meet that threshold. Um, and that's really frustrating to hear because we know that the way to fight that is that 
individual trans people then have to make a human rights complaint and take that to court. And that's an incredibly high burden for people who are already so marginalized in society to take on when this could have been a situation where an institution like the library says, actually, we support and care about trans people to the extent that we'll take on this fight, we'll decide that we're going to take a stand and say we don't want people saying things that harm trans people in our building. I think that's what was most disappointing to me was seeing people decide that they were going to take a position that would put more burden on trans people who already face incredibly high levels of discrimination, especially trans women. I'm a trans person in Edmonton, but I'm a trans masculine person who doesn't face the same kinds of hateful speech from trans misogynists, especially in the public sphere like Megan Murphy. I actually don't know what those kinds of transphobes think about uh, trans masculine people or non-binary people because they're so dedicated to this hatred of trans women in particular. And so that's uh, caused this incredibly unsafe situation for trans women to access public spaces. And it doesn't seem like Edmonton needed to wade in to this discussion at all, but here we are and we have. Um, and I am the kind of person who likes to review what's available as written statements. And so I read the Edmonton Public Library policy on room bookings and saw that it's very, very minimal and essentially says, as long as you're not doing anything illegal, you can book a room. Hopefully someone else will correct me at some point if that's not an accurate representation, but that's what I remember from reading it. And that just doesn't seem like enough to me to create welcoming, supportive spaces for everyone. That was Parker LaFleur, co-owner of The Quilt Bag and frequent public library patron. Thank you so much for that. Um, given that, obviously, this has real effects on whether or not a library is considered a safe space, I think that probably most people can agree that that's one of the big questions here. Uh, but I also wanted to mention, uh, given the way that Vancouver Public Library was banned from participating in Vancouver Pride, I'm wondering also how might a library's decision to allow folks with divisive views like Megan Murphy uh, to use library spaces affect that library's ability to be fully integrated into their communities, to be considered a safe space and also to be able to engage. Uh, I don't think anyone really wants libraries to be cut off from communities that need them and communities that should have a right to feel welcome there and to be involved in library activities. So I'm wondering if, uh, how might the decision affect libraries' ability to be integrated into their communities? I think in a lot of ways this is uh, the crux of the matter. Uh, libraries, as a, a definition given to us in our intro library class, is that libraries are the institutionalized rate relationship between information and a community. And without one of those things, you've just got a warehouse for information. That doesn't speak to the mandate of libraries. Yeah, and in, in response to your earlier point about how, uh, how are we as professionals to you know, um, navigate um, setting standards for what, an, what is and is not acceptable speech, well, I think what we need to do is be a lot more participatory and really figure out how to, you know, allow these um, marginalized people's speech to actually um, have a role in our decision making in a, in a really meaningful way, and 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 you know, to figure out what it would mean to not be so uh, paternalistic and technocratic as a profession. 
Let's hear a, a little sound clip that was sent in to us as well. Hi, my name is Colette Petra. I'm a Métis librarian. I have a Master's of Libraries and Information uh, Science degree. And I just wanted to kind of talk to you a little bit about, um, about my viewpoint and uh, just as an individual. I'm also the chair of the Indigenous Matters Committee, um, which is a, a committee of the Canadian Federation of Libraries Association. But I am speaking on behalf of myself and no one else. And I, so as a professional librarian, I'd like to note that I do believe in intellectual freedom. I think that's really important for libraries. I believe that to learn anything and make informed decisions that we need to hear all sides of the debate. But as an Indigenous librarian, and I'm going to position myself right now in the fact that I am middle-aged, I'm cisgendered, I'm heterosexual, I'm white-coated. So I think that's important for me to, I'm not speaking as a trans person, I'm speaking as an ally. And as Indigenous peoples too, many of us historically have believed that people bring gifts. Gender isn't binary, that there is fluidity there. And I think that's important to bring as an Indigenous person and remember that in our history as well. So because of that, even though I believe in intellectual freedom, I also believe in the core value of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I think that's really important and that's kind of where I'm speaking about uh, now I believe that everyone should have a space. I feel that particularly for people who have been marginalized, the library can play such an important, important role um, as a public, inclusive and safe space. And that's something that you, you don't find very often in today's kind of capitalist society. I also think that it's important to remember that librarians work with nuances every day. There should be no kind of absolute statements or language. And that's important because that doesn't always work. And as librarians, as professional librarians, we, we should be trained to look for nuances. You know, it comes to mind Melville Dewey. We talk about Melville Dewey and the classification schema that he devised. And now you look back, he was, it's widely known amongst library circles, he was a misogynistic wasp, right? He was a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant. And that's the viewpoint that he brought to the table when he was designing these classification schema. And now we're moving beyond that as an Indigenous Matters Committee, we're looking at new ontologies we're looking at updating terminology, and we're trying to be sensitive and inclusive, even with stuff like that that you would think would be relatively unbiased or, or um, static. We are evolving, and we have to remember that, like when we look at public spaces and we look at whose voices are being heard, that we need to be more open. And we need to remember that the dominant narrative, when we think of Melville Dewey, has been this kind of colonial worldview, and that we hear this narrative a lot this is something that we hear a lot and maybe it's not courageous to maintain that status quo anymore. Maybe it's more courageous to allow space for marginalized voices and voices that we haven't heard very often. So I've heard a lot too, oh the scale is tipping too much, that we're hearing too much maybe from Indigenous voices or from these, you know, the trans community and I think that in order to achieve balance, maybe we were, you know, we had this dominant worldview or this dominant narrative at one point and maybe we're tipping Maybe we are tipping a little more, but to balance out, we need to do that. We need to hear these voices amplified for a little while. That's important to me. And I think that we need to maintain people's self-worth, their human rights, and their sense of agency as well. So I'm going to paraphrase Robert Sellers, who spoke of diversity and inclusion as a dance, but I'll liken it to a meeting. So public library board meetings are public. That means anyone can come and attend, and that kind of lays space for diversity to have all sorts of people come to your meeting and simply attend. Equity means able to sit at the meeting table. But inclusion to me is being able to speak and most importantly to be heard. 
to have your voice heard at that meeting. And I think that's important. We can't have a conversation if we don't recognize people's human rights. So we're going back to being nuanced and not absolutist in our language. You know, we don't have to give people a platform. That's a choice that we're making to platform certain voices over others and maybe privileged voices that have, have been part of that dominant narrative. So if we want to have a conversation, but one side is denying the very existence of the other side in this dialogue, it's not a conversation. When you're denying someone their human agency, we can't have that conversation if one party is denying the other's right to exist. And then we risk making unsafe spaces in the public for already marginalized people. Thank you to Colette Poitras for that statement. Colette Poitras is a Métis librarian. Dan, you had a final word here you wanted to contribute? I just wanted to say that uh, the occupation of library spaces and the argument from scientific authority while misinterpreting the science is in this case reminds me a lot like armchair Victorians pouring sawdust into skulls in order to justify dehumanizing the communities that they wanted to justify dehumanizing back then. When in fact, if libraries do value prioritizing the information part of their identity, it might behoove them to push for more educational opportunities for library professionals to successfully interact with information, fact-checking, training, critical thought, in general, more information literacy, because in the current context of climate denial, anti-vax, uh, conspiracy theories, homeopathic recipes, what are libraries' responsibilities towards disinformation, when a balanced viewpoint would involve hearing out climate denialists, and we've seen the, the consequences of doing this. Uh, I think that's absolutely irresponsible uh, to the community, and I do think that we need to think a lot about where that neutrality uh, comes from and what information it privileges and whom it privileges. Thank you to everyone for tuning in, and thanks for that, Dan. This is a very complex and important topic. We hope we have further dis the discussion around this issue and would love to hear from you on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Uh, we are Show for Libraries, and uh, thank you so much for listening. We would really like to thank Parker Lafleur, Matt Stepanek, and Colette Poitras for sharing their time and contributing greatly to our discussion today. We'd also like to acknowledge that Trans Day of Remembrance was Wednesday, and we really hope that libraries can continue to be a safe and welcoming place for the trans community in the future. Thanks again for listening, and be sure to tune in next month. We'll discuss less serious things. We'll be jumping on the bandwagon and giving you the best of the decade list. So thanks again, and don't forget to check, check it out. out.